Thanks. Um, thanks. This is great. I'm sort of overwhelmed by the amount of people who are here, and I feel like in some ways I'm crossing the stream. I was talking to my daughter about this, about people getting people you know from different areas of your life together in one place and how that is sort of a weird and scary thing. Uh, so I'll preface this by um, suggesting to members of one of the many tribes of which I'm a, a, a participant, uh, we're losing 3 nothing in the bottom of the eighth. Yay! <laughs> Um, I say that both to irritate my wife and also, although actually I, it failed because we should be winning 3 nothing, but also to suggest um, some of the conflicts that drove that have, or some of the, the issues that drove this book. This is a book that's been um, in the making for this, this book here, Sidewalking, has been in the making probably since uh, the day I decided to move to Los Angeles about 25 years ago. Um, it has been a kind of interesting dance. And I, I once described, um, I, I once said that I think that I could never access the soul of Los Angeles because I didn't like any of the sports teams. Um, and I think that's actually sort of true. So the book is a little bit of a, a kind of back and forth between me and the city. Um, in one of the, in the opening chapter, I talk about the idea that when we live in a place for a long enough time, we both um, reinvent that place in our own image, and we also are reinvented by that place in its image. I'm really interested in this question of, um, of place and identity and how place forms us, both the places that we're from and the places that we come to be, and how our sense of, of, um, of place, or in my case, sense of cities as a lifelong city dweller are informed by uh, as much by the city I was raised in um, which is the city I call Manhattan and also as well as the city in which I've um, I've come to live so I'm going to read for I was going to joke around um, but Todd's not here I don't think so <laughs> I was going to say I was going to only read for about 70 or 80 minutes but I'm actually going to read for about 17 minutes uh, and then I'll take some questions <clears throat> or if there are questions um, but I thought that I would start, so just to say a couple of things, this is a book that was originally intended to be a version of, um, or sort of a, a, a gloss on Alfred Kazin's book, A Walker in the City, which is one of my favorite books. It's a book about uh, growing up in Brooklyn uh, between the wars, Jewish immigrant kid, and sort of coming to a sense of identity and place through walking the city. I couldn't write that particular book about Los Angeles because I'm not from here, but I wanted to write a book about walking in the city because I do a lot of walking in the city um, and also because I think walking is a, a fundamental aspect of how I've connected or, or made uh, a relationship with place. Um, but the book morphed on me as they do and so what, you, what we have now is a short book, 132 pages that took me four years to write. <laughs> um, with many blown deadlines. Um, so I'm going to read a bit of a chapter, but I want to read, um, I want to read a, a paragraph first that's just a kind of scene setter um, or an idea setter, and then I'm going to read something, and then, which I'll just read on its own, and then I'll set up the bigger reading. Um, so, but I'm, so anyway, all right, I'll stop talking. <laughs> One of the ideas I want to argue against is a sense of Los Angeles' exceptionalism that this city is fundamentally different from any other, although in many ways it is. If that sounds like a contradiction, that is also part of the point. Los Angeles continually evades us, or evades me, forcing us to rethink what we take for granted about how it, how any city works, 
This is why I both love and hate the place, source of my fascination and my resistance, my efforts to remake the city or my experience of it in a way I can recognize. Downtown is a perfect case in point. Once or twice a year, I lead a group of students on a walking tour intended to get at these very oppositions, not negations exactly, but complications, struggles, inconsistencies. Like everything else in Los Angeles, pedestrianism comes with its own context, its own set of crisis points. Walking is a joke, a punchline, the lyric to a bad pop anthem, Nobody Walks in L.A., saying the missing person's Dale Bazio in 1982. Walking is a conundrum, a question mark. When I first began to think about walking in L.A., a friend who's actually here asked, you're not going to make the case that Los Angeles is a walking city, are you? It's an excellent question, one that again highlights, highlights the complexities, the ongoing tension between hype and what, for want of a better word, let's call reality. So that's if the book has a thesis statement. Um, that, I suppose, is the thesis statement. I kind of wander through the city and use various uh, references, pop cultural and otherwise, to sort of explain my relationship to it. So I'm going to read the first part of, a, of the third chapter <clears throat> of the book, which is called Falling Down after the Michael Douglas movie. It begins with a, um, an epigraph from Carolyn C. They say L.A. is large, but they lie. I'm a reluctant Angelino. Even after all these years, nearly a quarter century, or maybe reluctant is not the right word. Maybe it's more a matter of ambivalence. Lifer, not never, a native, as if Los Angeles were some amorphous landscape of incarceration and I were serving out a stretch of time. In my dinner with Andre, Andre Gregory describes an encounter at Findhorn, the Scottish spiritual community. And when I was at Findhorn, he tells his dinner companion, the skeptical Wallace Shawn, I met this extraordinary English tree expert. He said to me, where are you from? And I said, New York. And he said, ah, New York, yes, that's a very interesting place. Do you know a lot of New Yorkers who keep talking about the fact that they want to leave but never do? And I said, oh, yes. <laughs> and he said, why do you think they don't leave? And I gave him different banal theories, and he said, oh, I don't think it's that way at all. He said, <clears throat> I think that New York is the new model for the new concentration camp, where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves, and the inmates are the guards, and they have this pride in this thing that they've built. They've built their own prison, and so they exist in a, in a state of schizophrenia, where they are both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made, or even to see it as a prison. And then he went into his pocket and he took out a seed for a tree and he said, this is a pine tree. And he put it in my hand and he said, escape before it's too late. <laughs> That's a telling bit of commentary, not least because more than three decades later, Gregory still lives at least part of the time in New York. Equally important, it raises questions about how we imagine the cities in which we find ourselves, how we frame our discomforts, our dissatisfactions, and I suppose our pleasures also through their lenses. When I lived in New York, I felt at times very much as Gregory's tree expert imagines, bound up, confined by the city, all its concrete corridors. I couldn't wait to leave, and yet apparently I could. It took several years of false starts and back and forth before I finally moved to California, where I had lived briefly as a child and then again at 18. Once I arrived, all I wanted was to go home. 
I spent my first few months in Los Angeles lamenting the aimlessness of it. Not the sprawl, but the emptiness. An emptiness so diffuse, so disturbing, and yes, so unexpected, that I didn't feel as if I were living in a city at all. That first summer, I arrived in May, I would wake in the mornings and feel the heat suffusing the trees outside my kitchen window like a kind of rising fever, sunlight thick and yellow as a smear of something, dust or mucus in my eyes. I felt slow, mealy in my bones. Time did not exist here or did not exist in quite the way I was used to, as something pressing in on me. This would be a relief to some, but for me it felt more like an illness, an infection, as if I'd given up my urgency. Where else should they go but California, the land of sunshine and oranges, Nathaniel West writes in The Day of the Locust, evoking the the end-of-the-road blankness that even by the late 1930s was already part of the personality of the place. Once there, they discover that sunshine isn't enough. They get tired of oranges, even of avocado pears and passion fruit. Nothing happens. They don't know what to do with their time. More than half a century later, it seemed, nothing had changed. Days passed in a haze of light and lassitude. For all the time I had spent here as a visitor, as a traveler, I did not, it turned out, know the city at all. It was like some strange sort of overbuilt suburban hybrid, urban, in Carrie McWilliams' well-wrought word. I joked to myself mostly with an edge of bitter irony that I had moved to the country for the summer, but even that did not feel directionless enough. Where was I? Why had I come? Before leaving New York, I would have said I knew the answers to those questions, but now that I was here, I was no longer sure. What I can tell you now is that this was a problem of translation. My wife and I had come west with a single car, and she was working. I was too, but in the neighborhood. In the cities I knew, the cities where I had lived, walking would have been a matter of reflex. I had only rarely driven in those cities anyway. Los Angeles, however, came loaded with its own specific lack of context clues. I don't want to say that L.A. doesn't have a logic, that it is sprawling, random, a city without narrative although this is a story I have at various times embraced. Exceptionalism, again, which is of course both true and false, although ultimately never true enough. At the same time, I think, the dichotomy is one reason the city bewilders so many of us, especially those who come from somewhere else. Read much of the critical commentary about, about the place, that it is shallow, that it lacks intellectual or literary life, that it repels the very notion of community, and what you are confronting are the preconceptions of the observers, who have most likely parachuted in from other more established locales. Architecture is a particular target, what Norman Mailer has described as, quote, the endless repetitions of that city, which is the capital of suburbia with its milky pinks, its washed out oranges, its tainted lime yellows of pastel on one pretty little architectural monstrosity after another. The colors not intense enough, the styles never pure and never sufficiently impure to collide on the eye. So too is the apparent inaccessibility of the street. Here's Mailer again. Los Angeles is a city to drive in. The boulevards are wide. The traffic is nervous and fast. The radio stations play bouncing, blooping, rippling tunes. One digs the pop in a pop tune. No one of character would make love by it. But the sound is good for swinging a car, electronic guitars, and Hawaiian burps. 
Or Truman Capote from his 1947 essay, Hollywood, quote, there is a sleight of hand about distance here. Nothing is so far as you supposed. And it, <clears throat> and it is not unusual to travel 10 miles for a package of cigarettes. <laughs> See what we're up against? I have never known anyone to travel 10 miles for a pack of cigarettes, nor, uh, not ever, not even once, nor do I know what character has to do with making love. <laughs> in Hollywood, Capote also mocks the idea of spending Christmas in Southern California, where tinsel twinkling on 24-carat sunshine hangs everywhere like swamp moss. For him, Christmas is out of place in Hollywood because the weather tells him so. But what is the weather in Bethlehem in December? And what does that suggest about authenticity? authenticity. This is what all these years in Los Angeles have taught me, that the only strategy for reckoning with a place is to employ a kind of double vision by which we peel back the cliches, the received wisdom, received from whom, I often wonder, and interact with the city on its terms. Yes, Los Angeles is sprawling, random, without, na without narrative, except, of course, when it is not. Yes, it can be still and sunbaked, with, as Capote writes, an air of Sunday vacancy, here where no one walks and cars glide in a constant, shiny, silent stream. But the same, I'd argue, might be said of any city where someone shows up for a few weeks or a few days and tries to come to a conclusion rather than to engage. Los Angeles, John Gregory Dunn wrote in the 1970s, is the least accessible and therefore the worst reported of American cities. It is not available to the walker in the city. There is no place where the natives gather. Distance obliterates unity and community. This inaccessibility means that the contemporary de Tocqueville on a layover between planes can define Los Angeles only in terms of his own culture shock. Dunn is taking note of something defining about the landscape, but even more, he's critiquing the standards of the critique. For him, and for me also, it's more useful or legitimate to think of Los Angeles in terms of its smaller narratives. The city is collage, as mashup, in which our personal experience becomes a way to adapt, to normalize, to make the streets accessible to us. Here we see what walking offered, a way of keeping the city bounded, of making it small. To move to this place had been for me a kind of culture shock. I needed a mechanism to rewrite the landscape in terms I could understand. Only a few months after I arrived, I spent an afternoon with Carolyn C. at her home in Topanga Canyon, where she presented a first glimpse of a psychic map of Los Angeles. I had already read her novel Golden Days with, it, her, with its admonition about the real L.A., which, quote, had its thick, coiled route downtown, and on the east, little underground rootlets, obscure Mexican restaurants, then a thin stem, the Santa Monica Freeway, heading due west and putting out greenery, places in this western desert where you'd love to live if things went right. Such a vision appealed to me with its whisper of Manhattan, another long and narrow corridor, bound on the southern side by the freeway and on the northern by the Hollywood Hills, stretching from downtown to the beach. I could visualize that. I could see it. It felt like something I could grasp. For C, however, this was only one way to think about the city, and not even the most important. More essential was the role of private life. In Southern California, she insisted, you don't go down to the cafe and drink a lot of coffee and talk about intellectual concepts the way you might in Prague. You get in the car, drive for an hour, have a long, leisurely lunch in a beautiful yard, and get the same material covered. There's a kind of daytime quality to the lot, to a lot of literary life here. Not a suburban quality, but, an, but a domestic one. Such a vision echoes Louis Adamich. 
he of the enormous village, with his notion of Los Angeles as less metropolis than Garden City, although for him, such a vision, anti-urban, and even worse, anti-intellectual, was one of the most distressing aspects about the place. Los Angeles, he wrote in 1932, grew up suddenly, planlessly, under the stimuli of the adventurous spirit of millions of people and the profit motive. It is still growing. Here, everything has a chance to thrive for a while, as a rule, only a brief while. Inferior as well as superior plants and trees flourish for a time, then both succumb to chaos and decay. I wanted to believe in C's optimism, but Adamich's cynicism kept getting in the way. I was working for an alt-weekly whose offices were a mile and a half from where I lived, south on Crescent Heights to Wilshire, then east on Wilshire, past the county museum, the tar pits, along that corridor of office towers. A block one way was the Shanghai Winter Garden, a Chinese restaurant, may it rest in peace, dating from the 1930s with a dim and mossy bar. I could almost imagine Philip Marlowe drinking there in the quiet darkness of a weekday afternoon. A block the other way was the El Rey Theater, not yet renovated, to which Marlowe had once glancingly referred. I mention this only to suggest my ignorance, my nostalgia, if it is possible to have nostalgia for a city you don't know. This, too, is among the hallmarks of Los Angeles, going back to its beginnings. With the start of the prosperity, of the City of Angels, Helen Hunt Jackson wrote in the 1880s, came the end of its primeval peace. Sixty-five years later in The Little Sister, Marlowe plays his own variation on this theme. I used to like this town, he growls, a long time ago. There were trees along Wilshire Boulevard. Beverly Hills was a country town. Westwood was bare hills and lots offering at $1,100 and no takers. Hollywood was a bunch of frame houses on the interurban line. Los Angeles was just a big, dry sunny place with ugly homes and no style, but good-hearted and peaceful. It had the climate they just yap about now. People used to sleep out on porches. Little groups who thought they were intellectual used to call it the Athens of America. It wasn't that, but it wasn't a neon-lighted slum either. For me, the nostalgia was for the neon-lighted slum. Noir city of the 1930s, corrupt and recognizable and bleak. I loved the idea of it. Southern California not as landscape of reinvention, but rather as end of the line. This was the vision defined by Chandler, West, and Fonte with their dust and smog-troked palm trees, their degradation and decay. It was a vision that marked L.A. as a lonely place, and since I was lonely, disconnected, that felt like the real Los Angeles to me. Take this walk, for example, which I made several times a week, back and forth from home to office, a walk that in a different sort of city would have been routine, mundane, unremarked and unremarkable, the most basic experience of urban life. Here, it was like passing through an alien landscape, unpopulated except for the landmarks, not a film set. I rejected then as now that reading of the city, but something more like the elusive texture of a reverie. Thanks. So we could do questions if you have any, or we don't have to if you don't have any. Yeah, so thinking about that line from Norman Mailer about driving 10 miles for cigarettes. It was Capote, I think, is the 10 miles for cigarettes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that or the idea, as you referenced, that Los Angeles was unplanned, or the idea that nobody walks here. Why do you think that myths like that, or things that haven't been true in a long time, still represent the city? 
Well, I mean, I think that it... I think that the, a lot of the myths of the city were created, uh, like I said, by outsiders. I mean, I think, you know, the myths go back. So I think a lot of the myths were created by writers who dropped in, parachuted in for a couple of weeks. That, you know, I mean, the classic trope, right? You parachute in, you stay at the chateau. Um, I'm serious. People do this, right? And then, you know, you get, you get a book deal. Um, you parachute in for three weeks. You stay at the chateau. You go visit the Black Hats on Fairfax Boulevard. You meet a mailman who writes a screenplay. You write a little bit about earthquakes, and boom, there's your book. Um, and I think that that was kind of the way Los Angeles was seen. It was seen as an exotic... I mean, the culture of exoticism, I say this jokingly, but not really, the reason that there is such a culture of exoticism about Los Angeles is because there are no palm trees in New York, right? So all these writers from New York came out and they were like, oh, palm trees, wow, this place is exotic. And that kind of created this um, that notion, and it sits because that was who was writing about the city up until probably the late 60s, maybe, when um, Los Angeles' literary culture became more indigenous or more sort of... Uh, homegrown, let's say. Um, the literature shifts from a literature of exile to a literature of place, but the lingering footprint of that literature of exile was to establish all of these tropes, and those tropes are really difficult to kind of carve their you carve your way out from, from under. I think it's also part of the issue is that a lot of the tropes are true, right? I mean, um, Los Angeles is a city of sprawl. Los Angeles is a city of flash and glam, right? It is a city of, 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 of surfaces, but it's also a city of neighborhoods and it's also a city of depth, and it's also a city of connection, and we somehow don't want to have that, um, you know, that that negative capability conversation where we can have those those two opposing ideas in our heads at the same time. We want to have a more simple definition of it, and those are very difficult to pull apart. I think. But I think, and we having moved here in 1978 on the plane, the woman said to me, "You'll be back," and I said, "No, I'm from the east. We have culture, and it's not yogurt." <laughs> I think Los Angeles is the city of the second half of the 20th century. And it's the first city where the working class relies on the car. And up until then, I grew up in Philadelphia. I had relatives that didn't have cars until the 60s. Right. And my mother in the 60s taught the woman next door how to drive because we were moving. And there were 60 row houses on the street and there were cars that nobody knew how to use. But I think it's, some of it is, it, 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 it is the second half of the it doesn't function like Boston or Philadelphia or New York. Um, I think I, I recently moved back from San Francisco, and San Franciscans are, are obsessed with hating Los Angeles. As, as are New Yorkers. <laughs> New Yorkers don't understand it, but San Franciscans really hate it. And the first thing they say is, you have to drive there. And the next question was, how did you get here tonight? And the answer was always the same. I drove. Right. <laughs> but I think it is that sense of, as you said, it's discovered, it's the blind, I always say Los Angeles is the blind man in the elephant. <laughs> and there's something to discover. Right. Where lots of other places, you go to Philadelphia, you go to Independence Hall, Betsy Ross House, look at the Liberty Bell, you're done, you go home. <laughs> no, I don't disagree. And I think that that's actually, for me, one of the the determining factors was accepting that there wasn't a kind of... Um, I mean, again, I approach all these things through literature, but if you look at the literature, right, there's a defined... You know, there's, there is the great New York novel, whether it's Manhattan Transfer or Bonfire of the Van, you know, the, the novel, the social novel that encompasses the city. There's Tales of the City in San Francisco 
or um, or McTeague, right? There, Chicago has Augie March. It's got Studs Lonigan. Los Angeles doesn't really have. I mean, the, the, the you know the only attempt to really create a kind of Los Angeles social novel is Upton Sinclair's Oil, which is a terrible novel and falls apart and doesn't really represent Los Angeles in any way except in Sinclair's head. Um, and so you have to kind of find your own narrative through the city. It is, it is wrong. I agree with you, you know, in, in many ways that it is the sort of city of the the late 20th century, early 21st century, the American city of, um, of that, partly because of that emphasis on the car and that emphasis on sort of suburbanization. But I think that that is also true of most cities post-war. I mean, Los Angeles is sort of the apotheosis of it. Los Angeles also has the distinction of having its suburbs exist within the limits of the city, right? Um, I mean, the, you know, there are suburbs outside of the city limits, but many of Los Angeles' suburbs are part of the city, whereas in New York, you have to drive out uh, to Westchester or Long Island, or you have to drive to the North Shore of Chicago or something like that. You know, you're, you're operating outside. But that model, that, that post-war American urban model of leaving the urban core and commuting on a freeway or a highway to your house in some far-ranging community, losing sight of the streets as public space, that's not, I mean, that may have been perfected in Los Angeles, but it's not only endemic to Los Angeles. What I think is really interesting now is that Los Angeles is coming back to a kind of earlier, they're going, it's going back to the future in a sense, both in terms of its own urban history and in terms of kind of general urban history, partly because we've kind of run out of space and partly because of terminal gridlock. Um, so we are moving back into a, a more of an appreciation of the neighborhood. We are moving back into slowly and fitfully into some kind of public transportation dynamic or some idea of pedestrianism. We're thinking, you know, more. we're going more vertical, <clears throat> all of these kinds of things. We're getting, you know, the streets are, we're thinking about the streets as public space in a way that was very much, I think, a hallmark of Los Angeles in the first 30 years of the 20th century before the free before the red cars got pulled out and before the freeways started getting built. So there's all of these kind of interesting dynamics and overlap. So I agree with what you're saying, but I also think that there's a lot in uh, in Los Angeles itself that we're kind of reconnecting with in some sense. One of the last things you read was uh, referred to the idea that uh, LA is just a series of shadows of old movie sets. Well, and you said I reject that. Yeah. No, I didn't mean old movie sets. I just mean, you know, it's a very, you know, you could say, like when I first moved here, um, I used to say, oh, Westwood is like the movie set version of Berkeley, right? Um, or Wilshire Boulevard, the Wilshire Corridor is like the movie set version of New York. You know, it's got high, it's got big buildings and sidewalks, but nobody's on the street. It's really clean. Um, you could f set a movie here. You know, I mean, Norman Klein writes about the fact that, you know, he calls Los Angeles the uh, most photographed and least remembered city in the world because... <laughs> It's always playing somebody else, right? I mean, downtown LA is always playing like Manhattan, or you know, there's that great scene in um, what's the in the movie Wolf, the Jack Nicholson movie Wolf, where he's walking down Lower Broadway in Manhattan, and he turns into actually the building that used to be the Village Voice building. That's the exterior, and then they cut to an interior, and he's in the Bradbury building. You know, so I'm like, wow, you went from Broadway in Manhattan to Broadway in Los Angeles like that. It was time travel or some kind of you know, you went through some kind of teleportation thing. So that idea that that, you know, that, that, that it always is, you know, it, but I kind of reject that idea because I, I think one of the things that 
Um, again, it's a cliche of the city. I think all of the cliches are true, but I also think that they are not true enough. And that we, you know, for me, it's not about rejecting the cliches. I have said this before, but I don't know that I've said it in front of any of you guys, so it's it'll be new. Um, but I think of Angeline as the great Los Angeles metaphor. Right? When I first moved here, I hated Angeline because she represented all of the bullshit and fluff that I hated about Los Angeles. Then after like four or five years, I started to love Angeline because she represented all the bullshit and fluff that everybody else hated about Los Angeles. And now I'm completely ambivalent. Um, and so I think that that, at least for me, my journey shockingly has been from, you know, one extreme to the other extreme to the kind of murky middle. Uh, so my point to make a dangerous statement that I moved to L.A. from New York quite a year ago. Uh, and I, uh... Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to cope with that because it feels like I'm wasting a lot of everything. I'm wasting time, I'm wasting sleep, emotional energy, creativity, just sitting in my car. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, Satellite radio helps. Um, <laughs> I spend a lot of time books on tape. I can't listen to books on tape because I space out, but I do spend a lot of time listening to satellite radio. Um, I think that you know, for me, and again, this is just subjective. For me, it was when I stopped um, comparing or looking back that I began to appreciate Los Angeles on its own terms. Um, and when I say I have a love-hate relationship with it, I do. But if I'm being really honest, I have a love-hate relationship with New York too. And the whole time I lived in. New York and in fact I was just back there a couple of weeks ago and I was there for like 10 days and by the end of it I was like I hate this fucking city So, you know, um, and there are definitely like when I pull onto you know when I pull onto the 10 and it's backed up and I'm like oh you know I'm never going to get I hate this city so I think there is that but I hate Los Angeles on its own terms when I hate Los Angeles and I love Los Angeles on its own terms when I love Los Angeles they are very different cities they are similar in a certain way but they are very different cities and for me I think the key and again only speaking for myself the key was once I gave up a kind of resistance to Los Angeles and gave up the sense of the master narrative, right? Because I always felt that New York had some kind of master narrative. Like, I understood what was going on. Um, in Los Angeles, once I gave up the kind of sense that I had any idea of what was going on, that really helped. <laughs> and actually helped in life as well. I, I can honestly say now I have absolutely no idea what's going on about 99% of the time, and it's better. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Right, but I mean, people rant about the freeway in the same way, and they will end up ranting about the subway once it becomes more enmeshed in the culture of the city. Well, it depends. I mean, you're, you're, you know, here, here's a community. So I do think that what Carolyn C. said is right, that in some sense, in, a, in, a, in what we'll, let's call a more traditional or a kind of more 19th century European model of a city, which is what I would say New York is, um, that community is sort of more in your face or more, you know, on the street. Here, I think the community, ha you have to kind of find where the community is or find where your community is. But I do think that the community is, um, is there. And... Um, so I, 
think it's it's an it's an it's an it's an acclim- I can never pronounce this word. It's an acclimatization process. Zach. Uh, so one of the jokes that a lot of my other native friends and I share is that we perpetuate the negative stereotypes about, about LA intentionally so that you don't want to move here. Well, you, you've, you've succeeded admirably. <laughs> did you, in the four years that you were kind of working on what became a book, did you get a sense that we intentionally put up a lot full of long sign? <laughs> I'd never had that sense. Um, I mean, for me, I think it's, like I said, I think it's a really interesting city because of, uh, sort of sort of to answer your question by not answering your question, um, I, I, I think it's a really interesting city because it resists our attempts to get beneath the surfaces, whether that's because Angelinos are playing an enormous, or native Angelinos are playing an elaborate practical joke on the rest of us or not. Um, and I think in a certain way, again, for me, walking became a filter for that because it slowed me down and it made it so that I had to actually see things that were happening um, that I would have missed if I was driving by. It's not, you know, we interact with the city at 35 miles an hour or 15 miles an hour, hoping we're going to interact with it at 35 miles an hour. But if you're walking, you're interacting with it at like three miles an hour, maybe. And so there's something about that slowing down and kind of dealing with it block by block that sort of, you you have to engage with it as a real physical place. And I think that really, for me, one of the big challenges, and maybe for the city itself, is that there's so much mythology that surrounds it that it's very difficult to remember that it is a physical place, right? DJ Waldy uses this phrase that I have used constantly and will use until I die probably, but you know, he calls it sacred ordinariness. And that what is really compelling about Los Angeles, like any other place, is its sacred ordinariness. It's people going to work and getting their kids from school and you know trying to get the groceries and you know all that stuff the stuff of life that's what's mostly happening in the city you know um you know when i first moved to Cal- southern california some friend of mine in, in the east coast said so do you see uh, a lot of celebrities and i was like they don't live in my neighborhood so <laughs> So no, I see a lot of moms and dads and like working people, like, you know, people living their lives. And I think that that is something we, you know, that this, that are, again, partly because of that culture of exoticism that we tend to overlook about the city because we're so busy constructing or reacting to these myths. But in fact, that's why I argue against exceptionalism. It's just a place where people live and ultimately. So, uh, David, first of all, comments from the woman who asked how to find community. I think signing up for your creative writing class is probably find like minds. Thank you. <laughs> um, 15, 20 years ago, there was a tremendous amount of criticism when the city walk was put up that, you know, we don't want to redevelop our real city, so we'll just build another one. <laughs> right. Now we're pouring zillions of dollars into downtown, LA Live, Staples Center, JW Marriott. Better, worse, same, different? Are we, are we avoiding the problem or are we reinventing the city? Um, you know, I, well, A, too early to tell. Now you've put me in my sweet spot, which is where I get to comment on stuff I know nothing about. So um, <laughs> I'm serious. I'm, I'll, we'll do this all night. But I, um, I don't know the answer, to tell you the truth. I mean, one of the centerpieces of the book is a long discussion of the Grove, which is a place that I am wired to hate, right? I mean, I should hate the Grove, but the Grove is really interesting. And the Grove has fascinated me since it went in. Partly because I live in that neighborhood. I actually engage with the Grove often from a, uh, on a pedestrian level. I walk to the Grove. I walk the Grove. The Grove is this... The Grove is in some ways a kind of... Um, 
perfect metaphor, right? Because it's the fake thing that becomes real. And if you look at the history of the city, right, right, Alvera Street, fake thing that became real. Farmer's Market, when the Grove was going in, everybody was like, oh, but it's going to ruin the Farmer's Market. But the Farmer's Market was a fake thing that became real. You know, the Farmer's Market in 1934 was a fake thing that was built on top of an actual Farmer's Market that, you know, someone decided, hey, if we, if we codify and commercialize this, we can make a bunch of money and create a tourist attraction. Chinatown, right, moved so that Union Station could be created. Originally, the first movement was China City, which was essentially built by Hollywood set designers to look like a street in China. Um, now Chinatown has roots where Chinatown is. Even the tar pits, which I think are really central to the city, um, the tar pits were there, but the tar lakes that we now, or that main tar lake that we now think of as the tar pit, was dug out 100 years ago to attract tourists. So all of these kind of dynamics come into play in L.A. As far as downtown, I don't know. I mean, I'm all in favor of the downtown revival because I am, uh, you know, I, I'm a New Yorker and I like downtowns. I like vibrant street life and I like big buildings and I like traffic and I like crowds. I think there's some real issues with downtown, particularly in terms of, you know, is LA Live Times Square? No, it's not. What happens to the merchants who've been on Broadway for a long time? Are they going to get forced out? Yes, they are. What does that mean for the fabric of the community? You know, I don't know. How do we maintain a kind of authentic fabric to that community while also being open to development and change? I think these are all questions that the city needs to face. Whether the city will face them or not, I have absolutely no idea. Have you yet been talking about your book to audiences like us outside of Los Angeles? And are people looking, at, if you're not in LA, from LA, are people looking at this book as, as a book about cities, a book about walking, a book about LA? How's it being received? That's a good question. I did uh, the first event I did was in Brooklyn at the Brooklyn Book Festival. Um, so I was like, "We stole the Dodgers," and um, uh, it was interesting. I mean, I was on the panel with <laughs> with two New York writers and me, and I, I had to. I mean, I felt that I had to explain Los Angeles there. Um, which I was not surprised at, but it was a little weird. But I, um, one of the things I like about talking about it here is that I don't have to explain it. That, you know, if we're all in it, we all are, are, we may not all agree or we may not all have the sense of how the city operates, but we all have a sense of how the city operates. At least in that situation, kind of piercing through. Uh, those kind of preconceptions about the city made it—I don't want to say difficult, but it was a different kind of conversation. I couldn't—I couldn't take for granted that we were operating from a, a common um, a common context. I have a similar question because um, have you have you considered going down to San Diego? <laughs> I'm going on I'm going on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've lived in San Diego for 25 years, and I feel like it has a lot of the same issues. I mean, I felt the same way when I got to San Diego and like, felt lost there because I also came from the East Coast. So I loved your book. And, Thank you. But I also feel like San Diego has this inferiority complex with regards to L.A. because it has a lot of the same problems, but maybe not so Right. I mean, you know, again, at the risk of over-metaphoring, which I have a tendency to do, and over-comparison, which I also have a tendency to do, I kind of see the dynamic as, right, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. Um, and in that same way that Philadelphia has a big chip on its shoulder about New York, I think, I mean, there there's something to do, again, I don't mean to oversimplify, but I think that there is something about ge 
geographic proximity um, and the kind of oxygen that um, you know, Los Angeles is like the older brother who sucks all the oxygen out of the room, right? Everybody in the family has to pay attention. And San Diego is like, wait, pay attention to me. I think that those, you know, that's both particular to the relationship of those cities, but I think it also is kind of generic in the sense of how cities in close proximity um, respond to each other. As you were doing your walking, did you have a sense of the landscape that underlies the sidewalk? Well, yes. I did. Um, I mean, part of, you know, interestingly enough, without ruining the book, for all of you who haven't read it, which I assume is pretty much all of you, um, what I... I mean, I, I, I mean I've, I've written about this stuff before. I wrote a book about earthquakes. For me, the tar pits are the center of, are basically the center of everything. And not because of, I mean, both because of that kind of tension between the kind of fake and the real, but also because we live in this city that appears to be solid, but is completely not. I mean, not just this city, any city, right? All human endeavor is folly. And um, it will all disappear. The truth, the reality of this city is the tar pits. The reality of this physical landscape is the tar pits. We are sitting in a bowl full of sand and tar. And that's where we live. And, you know, I'm really fascinated with what that means. I'm really fascinated with, like, um, La Brea Woman. You know about La Brea Woman, the, the 9,000-year-old skeleton who's the first Southern California's first murder victim. Her head was stoved in a blunt force trauma. Um, she was found in the tar pits. Of course, when they pulled her out of the tar pits and put her on display, they just put her skull on somebody else's skeleton because that's the way we do it here <laughs> but um there is something really interesting to me and really compelling and really moving about that kind of unresolvable tension between the deep history, the non-human history that the that the geographic geologic landscape represents, and then this kind of very ephemeral human history that, for whatever weight we put on it, is utterly ephemeral and will disappear. So yes, now that I brought you all down, yeah. Um, thanks so much. I really liked your reading. I lived in Europe for a long time and knew a lot of architects who loved LA instantly. And the case study houses they loved, the freeways they thought were this amazing work. I lived in Santiago. They love LA. They see a lot of similarities. So, have you given much thought to other outside this like Anglo-Saxon dismissal dismissal of LA? <laughs> yes. No, no, no. Yes and no. I mean, it's interesting because I write a lot of, I mean, I, I'm interested in architecture and I write a lot about architects. And one of, um, I don't know, you know, I'm definitely operating from an Anglo-Saxon point of view. Um, you know, for me, one of the real touchstones is Banham, Rainer Banham, who is a British architectural historian who came here and really embraced the place and, you know, wrote really I think beautifully and compellingly about infrastructure, right, and, and particularly the freeways as both architectural and also neighborhoods, right. I mean, Bantam has this amazing riff in. If you guys, if if you, if anyone here has not read Los Angeles: The Architecture of Four Ecologies, I'm sure it's on sale here. Buy it and read it. Um, you know, it was written in. It was published in 1971. It's still pretty resonant in many ways. But he has that great riff about how he, you know, watched people um, as they were coming off the freeways, people in the passenger seats of cars, turned out, you know, pulled down the mirror and kind of fixed themselves up before they got off the freeways. And it was a sense that they were re they were entering, um, they were re-entering the city, that they were, you know, they were inside and then they were going outside. And there's something really interesting about that, that, um, that framing. 
You know, I think it's one of the reasons, you know, I, um, you know, I, I write about the, um, the Hayden Tract. I read about um, uh, the Zumthor Project um, at LACMA. I think it's one of the reasons that the city has attracted um, those kind of architects because there is a way that the city is plastic, right? It's not... Um, it's open. You can do stuff, right? You can play. I mean, the Hayden Tract is a really fascinating corner of the greater city because those buildings exist as art objects in some way, although they also have a practical use. But that, you know, like what other city in North America would have that that stretch of what is it like twenty buildings? That two block stretch, really, really interesting. So I think there's those dynamics are very much at play um, in the city, and there's a reason why it's been an architectural hotbed because the possibilities or you can do stuff, you can really use it. And there's also a reason, I think, why critics from the East, right? You know, again, I talked a little bit about that in the excerpt, but Mailer West, at the very beginning of Day of the Locust, talks all about architecture, Capote, etc. Architecture is the, you know, is the is a great way to kind of deride the city or reduce it. It's got to be a stupid place if we have a restaurant that looks like a derby hat or a hot dog stand in the shape of a hot dog or people live in a French chateau, right? There's a French chateau um, a block north of Olympic and a block east of Hong Island that if I ever hit it rich, I'm buying that place. <laughs> I've had my eye on it for like 25 years. Isn't that, I think that's where Ellen DeGeneres lives, but I'll buy it from her. Um, it's phenomenal. I would love to live in a French chateau. It's got like a tower and a gate. It'd be great. You know, I just, I would dig a moat around it. But, um, but there's something really interesting about, you know, to me, and I don't mean to to um, dismiss LA's really sort of tortured um, racial history or its history of inequity, but there is a certain ethos of democracy that I think is expressed in the architecture, right? You want to live in a chateau? Great. You can live in a chateau. You want to live in one of those fairy tale houses with the droopy roofs? Be my guest. You want to open a restaurant that looks like a tamale, right? There was that tamale restaurant that was for sale on Whittier Boulevard a few years ago for like, you know, that, you know, you want to open a restaurant and design it in the shape of a tamale? Awesome, your choice. That's a great thing. That's a that is a kind of aesthetic statement that the city makes. You would never be able to get away with that in um, in most other cities, most other, certainly most other American cities. And so I think the architecture thing is really really important to the way the city both represents itself and also is misrepresented by um, by outsiders. Right. They weren't shopping. Well, they were shopping, but they weren't shopping for they weren't shopping. They weren't high end sharper shoppers, right? Right. <laughs> So I'm curious if you deal at all with the class aspects and the fact that New York versus LA is LA is very much more segregated by class. And there are lots of people who always walk from Los Angeles and who were out on the streets, but in this sort of who looks who dies who tells their story, right. not the people telling the story or the narrative. To some extent, I mean my lens was less um, class than well, I mean, it's it's always part of everything, I think, but it wasn't as overt. Um, I do think that that 
component comes up in terms of things like you know walking or riding the bus or public transportation and the idea of how the city shifts right once we start to engage with these kind of mechanisms then hopefully those lines begin to be blurred what I was really interested in was it was insulation or isolation and how in um, let's say, post-war Los Angeles, what Christopher Hawthorne will call the second Los Angeles, which we're now living in the third Los Angeles, which is actually a formulation I kind of like. But what, um, in, 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 if we go with Hawthorne's formulation and say the second Los Angeles, what you were living in, and I think it has to do with that public space question again, what we were living in was a city where you never had to be outside. If you had the right kind of job and lived in the right kind of house, you could walk from your kitchen into your attached garage, get into your temperature-controlled car, drive on roads where you didn't have to actually interact with anybody, and you know, pull into the parking structure in your office building, take the elevator up to your office. And then when you were done, if you wanted to go home, you would do that. Or if not, you would drive to the mall and park in their parking structure and then go to the movies, go to dinner, and then home. You could spend the ent- your entire life without actually engaging with the streets as public space, okay? So I think this creates a a lot of things. It creates a kind of really warped sense of community and how it works and who's in the community. I think it creates, one of the reasons that we've had such disastrous public architecture in Los Angeles I think is because there's no sense of of the city having an aesthetic. So now that's starting to shift a little bit. Um, We can debate whether we think that's it's shifting in a good way or a bad way, whether we like the cathedral, which I don't, or uh, Disney Hall, which I'm not sure about, or um, you know, any of those buildings, but public architecture in Southern California was so bad for so long because nobody actually looked at it. You just drove into it and then engaged with it. So I think it's more, for me at least, or my point of, of way of getting at it is more in terms of how the changes in the city open up the city. All of a sudden, we're on the street, we're, we're thinking of the streets as public space. I think a lot of it has to do with the immigration rallies in 2006, just as a kind of change for the way the city thought about itself, right? All of a sudden, two million people in the streets, the streets become public space. They are public space. It's not that they were never public space, but all of a sudden we're thinking about the streets as... Yes, exactly. So um, so it's, so it's I'm looking at it more in terms of the psychological shifts rather than the kind of street, the political or, or, or social shifts, I guess. I was born and raised in LA. I lived all but seven of my 66 years here in the city. And I'm just going to say I'm not the only one here who hasn't seen a whole lot of the city. I think one of the times that kind of come up with a meta-narrative about the cities that they're actually a lot of Los Angeles. Yes. And that most of us really don't know most of the city. No, I, you know, I, it's one of the reasons this book is short. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm not joking. This is one of the reasons this book is short, and it's one of the reasons this book is utterly subjective, because I, when I was thinking about how to write it, there was no possible way, certainly not for me, um, and I'm not sure for anyone, to write a comprehensive book about Los Angeles. So I had to fall back on, um, you know, as you can tell from the amount of times I've used the word I in the last hour, this is a really difficult thing for me to do, but I had to fall back on me and my own sense of how the city works. And so I really wanted to write a book that was subjective and impressionistic and really talked about the city, hopefully not just my city, 
although maybe, um, but certainly the city from my point of view, right? What's my relationship with the city? How do you, you know, how have I come to think about the city? What has the city taught me? Because I think in some ways that's the only way to approach the city. It may be the only way to approach any city, really. But I think this city, what if we can say that landscape teaches us things, and I think it does, or a kind of engaged interaction with landscape teaches us things, what this landscape taught me was that there is no master narrative. And so the only way for me to make sense of it is to make sense of it in the context of my own sensibility. And then that may or may not connect with somebody else's sensibility, right? My Los Angeles, I meet people all the time who, you know, the, you know their, their Los Angeles and mine barely overlap at all. And then other people with whom our, my, our, our Los Angeles is overlap in, in, um, in great measure. So I think, that's a, I think that's a true, I think what you're saying is, is, is right. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, I grew up in New York, and it was years before. I mean, I've, you know, whatever. I'll just say I grew up in New York and lived there until I was in my late twenties, and I go back a fair amount, and I've only been to Staten Island twice. I mean, I mean, you know, Staten Island's part of New York City. You know, there are vast stretches of that city. You know, Joseph Mitchell, who wrote for the New Yorker for many years and really profiled the city of New York, prided himself on having visited every neighborhood in the city. 500 and some he categorized it as you know that's a kind of an amazing thing I don't know anybody else who's ever done that with any city so I think it's true of most cities I think this city it's it's easier to see it because the city is more horizontal it's more sprawling it's more amorphous and those communities have um, identities that are very different from each other they identify maybe more as part of more as themselves than as part of the larger city I think we've had a lot of trouble thinking about our as part of a collective. I also think that that is partly has to do with the fact that Los Angeles has the incredibly bizarre phenomenon of independent municipalities existing within the borders of the city, right? Beverly Hills, Inglewood, Santa Monica, Culver City, West Hollywood, you know, there are others, right? They are fully bounded by the city of Los Angeles, and yet they're independent municipalities. That's a weird thing, I think. That's a pretty weird thing. I think they should all be annexed. The other piece of Los Angeles is what when I moved here, somebody gave me the best piece of advice, which is, it takes two years. Right, I heard three, but yeah, so that's right. <laughs> if you love it and you leave, if you love it and you leave, you'll want to come back, which I did. If you hate it, just get out. Right. But the other one, it's not a city of, I grew up in Philadelphia, and, and when my folks retired, somebody said, are they going to the Winkoat House or the Cedar Book Apartments? Because a Jewish couple of their age, where they live, that's where they went if they weren't going to book <laughs> it was a city that was bound up by, by interest. Yeah. So you could have friends that were all over the place, and you dipped into certain neighborhoods, except, okay, nobody goes to the Valley Inn and it's lucky. But other than that, I think it's less of a physical city. And that there's a second life. But I th well, that's interesting. I mean, I think it's both a psychological city and 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 also a, and also a physical city. But I don't. I mean, I don't disagree with that sense of it as um, as a kind of a city of of like interests. I think we find our communities where we find them. It's not as identifiable in the sense that um, you know this is. I mean, it, it it is to some extent, right? You know, Echo Park is Echo Park. We you know, um, but you know, there are. It's less about the neighborhoods. You live where you live, and then you kind of find. 
your your community and you find your way through um, through the city. So we're constantly redefining the city in some way. And so again, that comes back to the idea: it is a city of sprawl, but it's also a city of neighborhoods, it's a city of communities, but it's also an amorphous sprawling city. And we have to figure out how to how we want to navigate it. And that was something that I began to try and do from the moment I got here. Um, and you can tell both my efficiency as a writer and my speed as a writer that after 24 years, I got 132 pages. So um, thank you guys very much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.